I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. This is Romance. Podcast about romance novels. About being an achiever. About NASA. About being goth? Giant question mark. About having bad dad. About Arizona. About streaming movies and trying to be an A-list actor versus just embracing your B-list status. It's about Nepo babies. It's about likable authors. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, Isabel and I are discussing The Astronaut and the Star by Jen Comfort. She aimed for the moon and fell for a star. Is that really the tagline? Yeah, it is. That's on the cover. That is so... Do you think the tagline came first and then the actual plot for the book itself came second? I think the tagline came before the title. (laughs) I mean, do you think... So, okay. So, Sai... Oh, God. Oh, no. Not a digression. (laughs) On this podcast, this tight 10? You kidding? Get out of here with that. Who are we? I've noticed lately that people are using colons in their titles, not in order to provide more detail for their title, but so that they can include two equally clever titles. So, for example, the astronaut and the star, colon, she shot for the moon and landed a star, right? (laughs) Instead of, like, the astronaut and the star, a love story about a aspiring moonwalker and an actor, which would have been a more useful title for me. For you personally, yeah. You chose this book, and I'm sure we'll, I did. we'll get into the, the how and why for there. But um, you chose this book, and I just kind of blindly trust you. I appreciate that, but like my track record is not good enough for that blind trust. <laughs> it's like, trust but verify. <laughs> Literally nothing in this world is deserving of my complete gullibility, and yet, and yet, and yet I here I am. So don't take it as a compliment, because it's like literally I trust everybody and everything. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. I so we got this book around the same time that we got the YA novel, The Darkness Outside of Us. The Darkness Outside of Us, and that was another one of your picks. And so I thought you were going with a theme. I was going with a theme. If we'd read them closer together, you would have seen my theme come to fruition. Well, we can still talk about your theme. Thank you. I assumed when I got the book, saw the, I just saw the title. I didn't read the back of the book or anything, just that you wanted to read it. I assumed this was some kind of like metaphysical thing where an astronaut falls in love with a literal gaseous body, celestial body in the sky. I didn't realize how much I had thought through it until I was (laughs) confronted by like what it wasn't, Mm -hmm. which I think was, you know, kind of clued me into my myself as a reader, which is important Mm -hmm. uh, that I Mm -hmm. actually do carry a lot of assumptions. Thought it was going to be like, 
astronaut goes into space and realizes that stars emit some kind of communication that can be picked up on like sonar maybe oh man that would have been so cool and that would indicate that they have some kind of like consciousness that's legible Mm. to humans and Mm. so the spaceship starts communicate they use the spaceship to communicate with the star Mm. and that would have brought up all sorts of interesting things like the star may not know that there's like a human in the ship and might think that they're falling in love with a spaceship. You really did think through this. Yeah, I really did. Um, and I you would really did. I would love to read that book more than I would love to write that book. So if anyone wants to take that up, that concept, please do. Yeah. Um, but that's that's what I thought it was about. And then over the course of chapter one. At the end, we discover that the love interest is is not, in fact, uh, not a celestial body. Yeah, a flaming rock in the sky that may have died. What if the star was dead? And See, then- like that's such an interesting question. Like you know, like they'd been getting, like maybe that would have been like an epistolatory romance. She would have like decoded the star language, and then she gets there and the star's dead. How can you have a happily ever after with that? I said it was gonna be like that. Like it was ever gonna be like that. Like that doesn't <laughs> that exist. Been so but that was, good. Yeah, that was. I was like an epistolatory. I think I texted you immediately. You did. I told my uh, my spouse that that was my theory and that I felt really silly um, for thinking that that was it. And he was like, no, like, that's what you would assume. That's clearly what it's implying. And I thought that was really nice. I don't think that's silly at all. The other reason why I don't think that he's, like, pandering to you <laughs> is because this cover doesn't have people on it. Doesn't even have the wacky cartoons that you and I object to so vociferously on multiple episodes. (laughs) It is literally a heart-shaped nebula in space. With, like, the little, like, edge of the moon? The moon. Yeah. Yeah. Right here, here, here at the bottom. So if I were just, like, in the headspace of, man, the darkness outside of us was a bonker story about, like, a mom AI and, like, two... Russian American dudes fighting it out with their clones. Yeah. Dicking each other. Falling in love with a dead star seems more in theme with that novel than a goth astronaut girl with Mayflower money uh, falling in love with a B list actor who's vaguely described as a dark haired Brad Pitt. I, you know, I just. Fight Club Brad Pitt, specifically. Yeah, dark-haired Fight Club Brad Pitt. Well, okay, I think we should read the back of the book quickly. Although, I want to note that this cover art, the minute I saw it, I thought it was like, I thought like this was something that had originally been self-published on Wattpad, because it has that scripty font that they love. They do love it over there with their real person fic on Wattpad. Yeah, they do. (laughs) I, the only word, like, it's incredible that I was actually able to read the title and not, like, the astronaut and Harry Styles. Harry Styles and the star. <laughs> anyway, Houston, we have a love story. <laughs> astronaut Regina. Reggie, in quotes, Hayes wants to be the first woman on the moon. It's all she's ever dreamed of. But after a PR disaster, Reggie is off the list for a lunar mission. To rehabilitate her reputation with NASA, she agrees to a different kind of assignment. Astronaut, square quotes, training 
with a Hollywood action hero. John Leo is a charmer, with credits that include an underperforming sitcom and a campy action flick called Space Dude, his up-and-coming role, and a prestigious movie could prove he's a star. But John isn't just big muscles and an otherworldly smile. He's also a total space nerd. He's pumped about his own personal space camp until he meets the ice-cold Reggie. Although Reggie and John are polar opposites, their mutual attraction is undeniable, and it only takes a few weeks in close quarters for them to give in to its magnetic force. John is set on convincing Reggie that this is a match made in the heavens, and her future is in space, and he is among the stars of, Holly of the Hollywood kind. The odds of successfully launching a real relationship outside the confines of the training base are anything but optimal. Reggie, content with keeping things casual, is forced by a sudden turn of events to confront the possibility of losing John forever. Now she'll do whatever it takes to win both the man and the moon. <laughs> wow, that was out of this world. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Thank you so much. Audible, hire me. <laughs> this has been... An Isabel production. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the things that this book leaves out is sort of tangentially related to how we ended up reading it that we want to acknowledge up front. So Reggie is the daughter of a like a general in the Air Force. An admiral in the Navy because space is just the Navy with stars rather like because spaceships are yeah. analogous to seagoing ships. And they have pilots in the Navy too. True. I've heard that like if you have a bad landing, like on a commercial airline, your pilot was probably in the Navy because they're used to having a short runway. So they mm -hmm. land kind of suddenly because they land mm -hmm. on ships and then mm -hmm. if you have, like, a very smooth landing, it's likely that your pilot was in the Air Force. Mm. Seems right. Reggie's one of those hard landers. <laughs> she lands hard. And everything she does, I was just like, she goes hard. Um, and her mother is a very powerful science professor who's... At MIT. Which is the best one I've heard. Of the maths. Her mom is, like, best friends with a really powerful person at NASA who's also an astronaut named Deb, who happens to be Reggie's mentor. So Reggie has had, in addition to those things, uh, her family is also, like, kind of, it's implied Mayflower New Englanders or, like, whatever that is. Like, it's very Gilmore Girls-y, mm -hmm, uh, very mm -hmm. cold upbringing. But she's, she's had every advantage and then some because of who her parents are. Guess who else is in a similar, if totally opposite, boat? John Leo, the love John interest. Leo, the star himself. So he was raised by a single mother in poverty uh, in Los Angeles, California. His mom had tried to be an actress. It didn't work out. He knew his dad was a super famous martial arts actor named Brian Leo, I think. It doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. John doesn't really have a relationship with him. He barely has child support um, because Brian Leo was married at the time that he got his mother pregnant. 
so John decides he wants to be an actor. He gets bit by the acting bug. And he starts trying to figure out a way to make it happen. Like, he's good looking, but he's not particularly in shape. And he tries to do stand-up. And then he realizes that most people who are successful at stand-up have been doing it a really, really long time. And he's not, you know, like, everything. It's a skill to be funny. Um, That's Mm -hmm. why they make so much money. Uh, And that's why I also... I think I've gone on this rant before, but everyone thinks they should be funny, just like everyone thinks they should love animals. And you don't have to be. And you don't have to love animals. Like, don't hurt them or anything, but you can be totally indifferent to, like, dogs and cats. Yeah, you can have, and that's, I think that's fine and normal and healthy. Just don't, don't try to force it, right? Like, don't adopt a cat if you hate animals, you know? Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. And don't force yourself to be funny. Don't tell people you're funny if all you're doing is quoting Talladega Nights. That, a, that's not funny. It's not 2009 anymore. And Quoting movies has just... also never been funny. <laughs> the, people who wrote, the people who wrote the movie are funny. And you can share a movie quote and share that memory and share that laugh with someone, but that does not make you funny. That's true. That's just memorization. That's like, you're probably good at spelling bees. You can have a sense of humor. That Mm -hmm. maybe indicates that you have a sense of humor because you're like, I get it. Ha ha, right? Like, and you can also use it as a shorthand to explain yourself to someone else. Like, this is something I find funny. And then they're like, I do too. Let's be friends. Okay, that's cool. It's nice that it works out like that. But you are not funny if you're quoting movies. You're also not quoting if you're funny if you're just loud. These are all good takes. These are all really good takes. You're just like spitting wisdom here. Um, so we find out that John Leo is a pretty face who isn't particularly funny and isn't particularly good at anything else except making people like him. Uh, he's got some doofy, self-deprecating, handsome charm. He sounds a bit like a himbo. Yeah. Um, on screen, and I obviously love himbos deep into them, <laughs> especially of the Brendan Fraser variety. Anyway, so he makes it big on a streaming show that the kids really like, but no one over the age of 35 has ever heard of him. It like flopped in the theaters, and then it did great in home video. <laughs> yeah. And so he lands this big thing with a director who I was basically thinking sort of as like a cross between Darren Aronofsky and um, Nolan, because he's like some auteur who does like weird fucking shit, but he like, you want to be in his movies, even if you don't understand Inception or think it's that cool, like whatever. I thought of, I thought of Ridley Scott because of Prometheus. Where it's like all of his material has been smarter than him. And then when he gets a chance to do it, spoiler alert, it's not quite there. Trash. Although there were some really good lines in Prometheus. And it was a great looking movie. Once again, it's a skill set. It was really pretty. Exactly. This is, it's nothing's wasted here. There are no tangents on (laughs) moments. So he signs on to the movie without even reading the script. And Reggie, who's had this PR disaster, which he gets ambushed by a quote-unquote, and I do mean scare quotes in this instance, by a reporter who's been stalking her home. But he's not a reporter. He's like a crackpot. He, The book doesn't call it Flat Earther. They, they call it One Planeter. And his theory is that there's only one planet, 
and that the government has been selling us on this false idea of a solar system. Right, for years. And so he's like staked out Reggie's home and has been kind of like accosting her and she finally loses it and she's like listen dipshit small dick i'll tell you about it and like goes crazy and all the while he was filming her and then he puts that on youtube and and she punched she punched him she punched him and he edits edits the video to make it look like he was reasonable that she was flying off the handle that she was the one that was violent didn't include any of the context about stalking her and nasa's like you can't do the moon landing with that shit, buds, because we need you to look pretty in the spaces and in the the PR materials. It's all about promotion, you know? Like, there's so many... NASA gets it. There's so many good astronauts, but we need one who can, like, really sell us landing on the moon again. And she wants to be the first woman to walk on the moon, which is, like, her lifelong ambition. But if she goes to the moon, like... She's got to be ready to go in like... A year. Well, Mars is the 10-year away one. And she doesn't think she'll be good for the Mars mission because of like the radiation stuff from the other book we read. Yeah, because you can only have so many space hours before you get irradiated to death. You can't do two trips. NASA won't let you do... NASA won't let you do multiple long-term missions. So she's already been at the space station for six weeks, which is her initial dose of radiation then she's got like one more trip in her and she wants it to be the moon like to me radiation is the five thousand dollars of science like if you tell me radiation is the issue i'll just be like "Uh uh-huh yeah plausible Mm -hmm. plausible as kitchens that makes sense to me i'm not gonna bother looking it up to poke holes in it you know well, because, like, why would you? Because you get irradiated sitting on the beach if you're not wearing sunblock. You know what I mean? Like, we experience sun radiation beneath the dome of our atmosphere three planets away. It makes a lot of sense to me if you're in a tin can in a fucking polyester suit that you're going to get more of it. You know, you actually get more radiation when you're, like, flying in a, like, once again, in a, like, a commercial plane. If you have the window open, you got to put on yeah. your SPF. Anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good point correct facts and so she is encouraged by deb her mentor to seek out this opportunity to develop her public persona for the better she already feels like she has a pretty cool public persona but nasa is full of squares in texas and so the fact that she wears a lot of eyeliner and has a very severe black bob and punched a guy in the face and has been referred to in like GQ or something as a goth astronaut is not a good reason to send her to space. (sighs) Obviously not very connected with Gen Z. That seems right to me though about NASA. Like I think people by squares, although I will say my favorite astronaut photo, because they do portraits of the astronaut class, there's this lovely gentleman with his two rescue dogs and they're just licking both sides of his face. And I just love that it's been immortalized forever that like this is how he wants to be remembered by humans. You know the like third astronaut who went up with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin? That That other other one, one. I heard an interview with him and he is, it's very clear to me why Buzz Aldrin, who is considered salty and is referenced in this book for his saltiness, and Neil Armstrong, who's like the fucking Tom Hanks of space. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Space dad. Were the ones who got foregrounded because this guy was like, no one gave a shit about going to fucking space. 
We didn't care about science. We were military man. We cared about beating the Russians, and that was it. Everybody's adding all this stuff about, like, intellectualism, and that's all horse pocking. That's all been taped on after the fact. My mission's complete. I beat the Ruskies, you know? Like, he is, like, not a good... <laughs> Public persona. I think he said something like, the only reason I was up there is because I could take the G's. <laughs> Meanwhile, Neil Armstrong's like, you know, practicing one small step for me, one giant leap for all mankind. And he, got, he like is clearly so mad about it. He's like, he wasn't any different or any better than any other military man. He just got chosen, you know? He seems like he's got his gears ground. Reggie's got her gears ground from minute jump. We meet her in a training exercise where her uh, co-worker is, like, taking too long. He's, like, singing to himself on the intercom. And, like, as far as, like, storytelling, I thought this whole thing did a really good job of encapsulating, like, she lone wolfs it. She hates that he's taking his time. She's a bad team player Um, because she makes a mistake because she's rushing to help him because he's not going fast enough. And he's like, I got it. I got it. And so then she blows the time herself and rather than like... Because she hits her helmet. Because she hits her helmet and they have to begin doing the protocol for an accident. And then instead of like doing that, she just immediately rips her suit off and is like, fucking exercise done. Sign of perfectionism. You'd rather stop early than see it through poorly. Bad teammate. (laughs) Bad teammate. She was unlikable. Deeply. I thought that was super successful. I was so mad at her. I thought so too. I was very angry with her. And I was like, oh man, if she's going to be this way for most of the book, I'm going to have a hard time. And I was worried that it was going to be the perspective of the book. I think that says something about how used to likable heroines we are. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Can confirm. But it is so hard to land. It's hard for people. I wonder if people don't stick through it on this book. I wonder if people, yeah, uh, DNF this, don't finish it. Which would be a problem because, like the Nepo babies in this book, Isabeau and I are slight, well, Isabeau's a Nepo in-law. I'm a Nepo in-law. And I, I am a Nepo friend of an in-law. We received this text from an editor at Montlake Romance at Amazon. That editor is my sister-in-law, who's cool as an ocean breeze. I feel like I want to acknowledge she also let us sleep on her hotel room floor during RWA once. We have absolutely reaped benefits that were not due us from our talent and stick to We did pay our own airfare. It's true. We did. Allison really helped us out. Allison's cool. If you want somebody in your corner, you could do... A hundred thousand times worse than my awesome sister-in-law, Allison, who sent us this book. Is this the first Allison Dasho joint that we've read for the podcast? This is the first one that we've read that she's edited, I think. I know that she's made recommendations to us, but I also will say I did pay for this book. It was not available at my local library. Isabel got a free copy. I'm happy for her. We did. Um, She does owe me five U.S. dollars. Seems right. I can make that happen. Um, But we just wanted to be full disclosure. Full disclosure. I know the editor. (laughs) We received a gift. If any of you want to send us free books. 
Or a $100,000 private charter to an Alaskan fishing lodge. We won't declare it either. Did did she send us that? And you used it for yourself? <laughs> no. Did it even bring me? Of course I would have brought you to the Alaskan fishing lodge. Who would have enjoyed it more? That's true. Uh, anyways, okay. So just to avoid confusion, we have never received a gift in excess of like what 25 bucks yeah like are you you got like a hard copy of it no this is i mean it is a hard copy this says that it is selling for 12.95 in its paper copy we have never received a gift in excess of 12.95 us us dollars that's right um to report on and, and and she didn't even like give it to us for the purposes of us talking about it on the show. That's just she just gave it to us for pleasure. Yeah, that's because Isabel didn't want to read another book. It's true. I'm sitting on my desk. <laughs> so, anyways, so yes, nepo nepo babies abound. But like that nepo baby thing, the uh, fact that our main character is a woman and stem, aka a stemmen, stamen, a stem. Stop it. <laughs> erasure. <laughs> Genital erasure. That was so funny. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, she's a woman in STEM from a woman in STEM. Our our fella, he discovers that maybe the reason he didn't read his script beforehand is because he's got ADHD. He's got that executive functioning disorder. He's also Jewish in a way that matters in the book. That's true. Take notes. <laughs> and it's also like, it is exactly as it should be. Like, an integral part of his character that doesn't need to call any more attention to itself than the fact that it exists as a facet of his character. And the fact that he doesn't celebrate Christmas is a plot point in the book that carries mm-hmm. the story forward. So it's not yep. like... I I heard this interesting, oh my gosh, I think it's from Sanjana on TikTok. She talked about how we need to stop talking about good representation because Mm. whenever we talk about that, we're always referring to like people of color. And Mm -hmm. whenever we say good representation, we're talking about like a single narrative, right? Like are they, Mm. and people of color should be allowed to be like. All sorts of things. All sorts of things. However, I feel like the throwing out of just saying someone is something feels disingenuous. And I think about like Neon Gods when like the woman buying flowers was a Hispanic lady or something. I think it said his mm-hmm. no, maybe it said Latina. I don't wanna I don't wanna oversell how bad it was. And then also crucially, the character of Adam in the love hypothesis just says, I'm Jewish. That felt like just saying it like it was trying to check a box as opposed to like having like a genuine conversation or they genuinely believed that adam driver was jewish and they were performing their real person fic as authentically as they could without wikipediaing that person and so i do think there is some maybe there is some precedent for like bad representation I wouldn't like go so far as to be like, he's a great representation of what a secularly Jewish man is like, but it didn't feel like it was just checking a box. It didn't. Right. (laughs) And it like, you know, yeah. And the whole conversation with his mom, like all of it was like, yep, this is like 
a secular Jewish person explaining their secular Jewishness to a person who hasn't considered it before, uh, which was Reggie, Regina, Hayes. And it's not that she hadn't considered it before. It was just he had to, like, he was like, they had to make holiday plans, and her family has this very formal Christmas Protestant. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, I can go and with you to see your family because my family doesn't really do anything. Um because we're secular and Jewish. And she's like, okay. Come home to my family in Boston. And then they get to go and have like a nice little like long weekend without any kind of religious ceremony, (laughs) I guess. Which is all to say, this book has like all the fixins. It's a rom-com. It was yes, actually laugh out loud funny. An incredibly contemporary issue that's going to be a non-issue before too long, which is Nepo Babies, that it addresses in a conscientious way. I think it's it's successful at all of those things that it does. We can talk about ways that we don't think it's so successful. But it makes me wonder, like, why do some books get Berkeleyed and some books don't? Great question. So another way of thinking about this, because you said this before we started, and you said that this struck you as like peak contemporary romance moment. Like it checks all of the things as you just brilliantly laid out. And I think it's worth it to think about how this functions as a peak contemporary rom-com in the same way that like Dead Romantics like was everywhere last year. It was on all the lists. It was on Good Morning America. And like, this is at least as successful as that, as a text, why didn't it get the same treatment, I think is a good question. What do you, like, where where do you think lies the magic sauce of, like, marketing? Is it self-marketing? Because, like, it's not a big publisher. The cover isn't great. Yeah, cover's not great, especially for a romance. It's not communicating the things that rom-com romance covers often communicate. This is a little more, especially for how steamy this text is. Like, it is, like, they have very passionate sex. He eats her out on a solar panel connected to the, like, Mars habitat that they're studying on and it's like intense like at some point she's like don't worry the struts are gonna hold and he's like we'll see and there's like no heat on this cover or in the back of the book so that would actually like if you thought this like you would not be wrong in picking this cover up reading the back of the book and not knowing that it's a steamy romance well Isabel how many actual sex scenes does it have one weekend one it has one sex scene and then it talks about the fact that they continued having sex all weekend it has that very intense masturbation scene too i would i would count this as two but it it's not like it doesn't have it is i would say it has a lot of i mean like steamy i don't know those like steamy spicy they don't really tell you a lot like there's one like i would say there's one and a half full sex scenes in this book there's a lot of like flirtation and tension, a lot of references, a lot of fantasy on the page, a lot of longing. Um, now that you mentioned, I guess that maybe the longing is just so explicit and I'm not used to that. Yeah, I think maybe that's it's like they spend a lot of time thinking about having sex. 
Yeah, they spend a lot of time thinking about how they're going to fuck each other. And they use explicit language about how they want to fuck each other. They're not fucking each other. They don't do it. You're right. But I think, like, that points out the issue, first of all, that, like, those cartoon covers, they don't really – they don't really describe heat either. And so we don't really have a need for it. And then we're getting, like, our references to how sexually explicit a book is – from people who are using terms that are decidedly unscientific, like spicy or steamy. Or, or like, I've also seen people give, like, three chili peppers to things that I wouldn't consider. If it's three out of four, I would say this is a two chili pepper. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's really difficult to communicate. And it's something that it seems to be such a selling point, and yet it's so elusive. I think that's true. Yeah, but I I still feel like this book, if it had like it, it makes it would make sense to me if this book had one of those cutesy covers that we mm-hmm. see on something like the Dead Romantics, maybe even one of those like fan art covers like we see on the Love Hypothesis. I don't understand like the, there's so much of the romance industry that's opaque to me. Jen Comfort, her background is similar to that of Allie Hazelwoods. She's a, she is a science. She's studied science herself. She dabbled in astrophysics before spending a decade working in restaurants in New York City and Portland. I don't know what dabbled means. Yeah, that's a good point. She's not as is that it though? Would that possibly? That's what this says. And like, Allie Hazelwood like is a published PhD. Yeah, but would that be the difference in why Allie Hazelwood has this? Well, okay. The other thing, the reason Allie Hazelwood has the big publishing contract is not because of her PhD. It's because she wrote a super successful fan fiction based on one of the most popular ship of all time. So she had already proven how she could sell. Who was it that got Roxanne Gay to blurb her first novel, The Wedding Date? Jasmine Gilroy, maybe? I would love it if Roxanne Gay blurbed anything I ever did. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and there, there was briefly, like, the Golden Hearts community. Yep, 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 yep. Which would be, like, Scarlett Peckham and Melanie Johnson and... I mean, with RWA the way it functions now, which is to say they've gotten rid of the Golden Hearts, the Ritas have changed to the Vivians. I don't even know if they function the way that they did. I haven't seen anybody put anything on a cover that's like, you know, the version of Rita Award finalist that we used to have. Like, the industry itself doesn't have the same sorts of markers that it used to to talk about, like, how a book is functioning in terms of a readership so that you could, like, have a shorthand to know what you're getting. It's almost gotten more opaque. I think it has because it's, like, so decentralized now. And it's also on Twitter. And, like, one of the problems of Twitter or Instagram or book talk is that there's this funky-ass interplay of people who are, like, don't review or don't tag me in your reviews or only give me good reviews because this is how I pay for my college or my kids college or my mortgage. I can't tell you how many times I've seen an author say something like that. And I'm like, what is this? Like, this is how you pay your mortgage. If you've written a bad book, people shouldn't spend their money that they also used to pay for their own stuff Mm -hmm. on a bad book. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Like, everything can't be 3.5 stars on Goodreads. Like, that's just, 
not how this works. And like the one like romance magazine back in the 90s, they went under because everyone realized like they weren't writing any bad reviews and that that it was discovered they were actually like getting paid pay for play from publishers yeah which is like old as the hills but also everyone was like romance authors who get covered in like the big publishers they're covered by their fellow romance uh authors who also from attending getting to sleep on allison's hotel room floor that one time and hanging out at the bar they're they're pals like they're buds they're hanging out they have a non-contentious relationship if you want us to review your book, you better be mean to us. <laughs> I mean, don't be mean to us. That's not what I'm saying. And, like, rep your friends, but also, like, declare your biases. Yeah, be conscientious. Right. And, like, none of that happens. And so, like, what's upsetting to me is that I think this is – a spoiler alert for the rest of the episode. I feel like this is the best contemporary romantic comedy I've read this year, if not last two years maybe. It would definitely be in my, I I put it up there with like the hating game as far as being successful. Like I laughed out loud reading this. I did too. And I ate it up. I found myself fan casting in my head, which is my least, (laughs) I never do. Oh, I do that all the time. I absolutely fan casted this in the first two chapters. Who were your, uh, who's your fan cast for Reggie? Well, at first it was Rose Byrne, and then I was like, actually, I kind of want an unknown, but someone like very like pointy, both in face, and then like somebody whose eyes could take a lot of dark eye makeup. Uh, mine was, I think, Allison Ritter. I think that's her name mm, from Don't Trust that's the a Bee. Good one. Kristen Ritter. <laughs> Kristen Ritter, you were close. She would have been perfect. That's great. That's great casting. She's pointy. She's got the dark bob sometimes. Who is your John? So I got massive early Brad Pitt vibes as we discussed at the top of the episode. So then I was like, who's an allegory for like that kind of person? And I've been reading all the stuff about and just like that. And like, you know, the drama around Kim Cattrall and Sarah Jessica Parker. And then I remembered Samantha's super awesome himbo boyfriend, Smith. And I was like, that's this guy. I eventually landed on Jensen Ackles. Mmm, not a bad choice. Because he's kind of, like, the character kind of calls for blondness. Yes, I also think that even though he's described as having dark hair, I was like, wrong. I think it's because of Golden Retriever. Yeah, I think that is absolutely part of it. What was the guy who played Smith? He was the first man I ever heard say, and this was before I had any, like, real concept of this, but that he preferred a full bush. And Samantha had gray pubic hair, and so she refused to grow out her full bush. But she didn't tell him the truth. She tried tweezing out single pubic hairs, and so instead of telling him that she was going gray, and that's why she wanted to wax, and he's so much younger than her, she told him that she can't, she's a busy working woman. I can't have you rooting around down there. I remember this so vividly. That is really vivid. He was like, whatever you want, babe. (laughs) I just remember the scene where uh, he shaves his head for her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Justice for Smith. Justice for Smith. I mean, we can't have Smith, right? Because we don't have Kim Cattrall. Yeah. And justice for Samantha. Honestly. Honestly. But yeah. Yeah. I found myself fan casting, which is not a practice I'm accustomed to. I don't even notice when something's intentionally a fan 
piece. That's true. I have to point out the Adam drivers to you. Yeah. And like I was in the Henry Cavills, which I also think are like everywhere following me, looking down at me from (laughs) corners of the room. (laughs) Saying inappropriate things about young women. Pointing out if someone is an old soul. that I was like looking for it this time and then I was like well I'll just make it up myself and I decided I got to do that because I actually feel like it's very successful it gives us like the fact that her she has these severe straight bangs and a bob and her hair's dyed black and she wears lots of eyeliner we later discover that the eyeliner is kind of like her way like a, a self-defense mechanism as well um and we get enough description of him and we also, like, the novel also problematizes his perfect body and talks about how much work and how much misery goes into looking like that and what a, how unhappy he is in his beautiful body. I wanted to disclose something to you because it felt like a real moment of, like, I didn't, enc- I, like, I encountered my own ignorance in this book. Where they're talking about, like, because in the wake of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he has to have this, like, incredibly buff body, and it's not, like, a normal body, and you have to work it out in all these specific ways, like, six hours a day, and you have to eat all this stuff, like, okay. And then the director of the film is like, well, you gotta get real buff, you gotta get, like, crazy, like, superhero buff, and it's like, are you gonna do the steroids? And then I was like, Chris Hemsworth? And all the Chris's do steroids? Brie Larson does steroids. Actresses do them as well. Ah! And I was like, of course they do, Isabeau, you fucking ignorant human. Of No one can have veins throbbing like that in their bicep in a normal way. And then I was like, I'm really glad that this book pointed that my own ignorance out to me. Because there is no physical way... To work out that hard and, like, eat all the right stuff and have a personal trainer, you still need steroids to get that body. It is literally physically impossible to do it otherwise. And I was like, I'm dumb because I didn't question it when somebody was on the red carpet and he's like, well, I just did leg day every day and also arm day every day. I was like, I "I bet they did those things too, but also literally steroids. It's like, that was just one of those moments where I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, how did this not occur to me? How am I so bought into this system that I like, even a part of my brain was like, it's possible for me to look like I could have arms like that if I just ate right and did arm day every day. And it's like, no, I can look like Sigourney Weaver in the first Alien film. I think that's cocaine and cigarette part of it. Definitely (laughs) caffeine. It's a liquid diet plus coke. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I liked that about this book, too, because I was like, fuck, I'm dumb. That actually seems like a site where you can see successful kind of confrontation of uh, current issues in romance, right? Because it's not like he gave, like, a big speech. He wasn't like, no, director. Like, he does... (laughs) He does um, eventually, like, go on to, like, decide he's not going to work out like he was to have the body that he does because he's like, it's unhealthy for everyone, me and the people who see me. He doesn't say that even specifically. He just has like thoughts where he's like, this doesn't serve me and I like my body in like a normally fit way. And like that's enough success. 
Like Robert Pattinson did when he was the new Batman. People were like, are you going to get in shape? And he's like, no. <laughs> I wear a bat suit. Like he like worked out, but he like did not get crazy looking. And people were like, oh. That's a choice that you made. <laughs> and like, I'm going to be honest. No one was like, this isn't as good as when Chris Evans debuted his Captain America butt. People still got all hung up on Robert Pattinson. That's the thing is like, I mean, not to reference that article, that piece again, but like everybody's beautiful and no one is horny. Was having sex, yeah. Is very true. I feel like the like Superman bodies are mostly for the male gaze. Well, I think like it's not that we're not interested, right? But it's like it, it's like the interest of a statue. It's like I can appreciate it aesthetically, but I'm like I don't want to go to bed with it because like how can I have sex with that? Like this is this is a good thing to talk about because one of the things that arrested me in the text was this line where she's where she's like the most beautiful person you've ever fucking seen in your life. Like he gets off of the private plane and he's just like sleeping and he's like so astoundingly symmetrical and beautiful as is. And like, that's the thing. If I saw Brad Pitt in real life, he would be gorgeous. And like Henry Cavill without his Witcher muscles is still a very attractive human being. Like Michelle Pfeiffer, a fucking knockout, right? Well, now there's a good example. I'm not sure if, like, Brad Pitt at this point in his life, I'm not sure if Henry Cavill without his buff body would make me look twice. I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer. If you were standing next to her. Any context, any day of the week, I would be like, right? Whoa. Where are you from? Right? Like, you're, like, too beautiful to live. Like, you are just, like, and I think, like, there are people who just, like, through genetics and just, like, have it and, like, having someone speak that into being in this text is really useful for me because like one of the things about the Marvel cinematic universe and like you brought up star or uh, Superman. So DC is like the scene in, I think it's Superman versus Batman where like, they're all just, they're, they're, they're statue hot. But like the scene that I felt like was for me as a female gaze haver was when, um, like he's drawn Lois Lane a bath and then he's like fully clothed and she's in it and she's like stressed out and he's like kind of playing with her to like distract her. And then he just like fully gets in the bathtub, fully clothed. And I was like, that's a person I could have a relationship with. That's a person that I like want to be around. That's a lover. Right. Exactly. That's a lover that I could have. Right. And I like that scene was for me. And it wasn't even that his clothes were wet. It's just like, you know what I mean? Where it was like, it was the physical intimacy itself rather than like the like insanity of the muscles. It's like the difference between like when they do the um, Sexiest Man Alive People magazine cover of Hugh Jackman versus like the like men's health version of you know what I mean like and when he's wearing a sweater and like holding a puppy and in the other he's like a roided out monster but sexiest man alive is like such a good point about how we're always being told what we should be sexually attracted to but as women we're never that influenced you know like we'll be <laughs> like there's always gonna be a huge rabid contingency of women who are like you can tell me that I don't want to have sex with Steve Buscemi all you want I want I want that I want that water-eyed fucker in my pants yes please that is a lover to me 
Whereas I feel like men really get hung. Like, I don't know if a man has ever just wanted something. (laughs) 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 Like for its own sake, you know? God, I had a really great way to link what we're talking about back to the text. And then you just came out with that zinger. We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance. We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Yeah, let's talk about weirdest part. This, my weirdest part is like the stakes of this text, which feel wildly out of sync all the time. Um, so we first get the conversation about this one planet guy and it's like, it's in her POV and she's like, he was kind of stalking me and like kind of this like outside my house. And we get all this information that NASA really didn't like the blowback and like she didn't escalate it to anyone. And it was very weird to me that NASA wouldn't have escalated it where you have this like weird hanger honor at like the private residence of at the time a woman living alone. Like I felt really nervous reading about that. And I think the text wanted me to feel nervous because there are other like you know, foreboding moments where it's like, there's a drone in the sky that nobody knows it's there or why. And then it's like, well, it's obviously the fucking crank. Um, And then at the, like, the climax of the story, this guy has enlisted two other, like, militia dudes to expose the fact that NASA has been lying about the moon landings and other planets. And he has brought zip ties and a gun. And he, like kidnaps John Leo and forces Reggie to open the Ahab full of all of this like very specific science equipment. And like, I think post January 6th, I have a very different relationship to posse comitatus, oath keeper, conspiracy theorists that come out of the internet with guns. A very different relationship with people with zip ties. And the fact that this is solved so quickly and that the militiamen are seen as a threat, but like a buffoonish threat, I felt like was one was a point of like disservice that this text like kind of just like undermined itself in that moment where it's like, it isn't buffoonish. Like this guy was stalking her for a long time and now he's enlisted other people. And it's like, they do go to prison But it's, like, for three years, which is, like, whatever. I just, I was more scared than I think the text wanted me to be. And then it resolved too quickly. And so there wasn't 
the catharsis I was looking for from that didn't happen. This was also published in 2022, which I think is post-insurrection. I think you're right to point out, like, I I know that this book wants me to be scared because this book lands a lot of other complicated emotional stuff, like having an unlikable heroine. And the fact that I think another part of the resolution that's kind of frustrating is that things are fixed because of John's ability to be charming. John's skill as a charming, beautiful, white man allows him to save the day. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was that was particularly intentional, right? Mm-hmm. It was just like him using guess what? His skills are important and successful and helpful as well in a real tangible way. The book points out to us at all times this like very small ability which is to be charming is far more effective than all of the work that Reggie has done. He has been able to succeed in spite of that because of his father in large part, but also because of his winsomeness. It's it is frustrating to read that as a somewhat like unlikable woman. Yeah, that he's just like essentially like not coasting. I wouldn't say that he's like a coaster, but that like yeah, that his winsomeness can diffuse a very tense situation and that her years of training and science and also her military service um, all just kind of equates to bubkis in the critical moment. You know, and it does point out to us that, like, she needs a teammate and maybe a teammate who doesn't have the same skill set as her, right? Like, cool. that is important. Mm-hmm. That's an overarching theme. But it's still... You know, I don't think it's in any way, like, intentionally, malignantly cruel. (laughs) It is just something I notice. The other thing I notice about the stakes is that they aren't flat earthers. Like, it's clear what the parallel is, but they insist that it's a one-planeter situation. I'm not totally clear on why romance insists on off-branding things. Like, are they worried about, like... I don't know, a lawsuit or which like I've never seen anyone refer to fake Twitter in a way that would maybe nowadays. But even that, like it would like it literally falls under fair use of the copyright law, which the Supreme Court, as conservative as it is, just like reaffirmed. Yes. Like dating apps, the way that like Swiper. Like, what's the point of that? And like further, those like that gulf in my understanding is made a throbbing chasm when it is a utterly debunked conspiracy theory (laughs) such as flat earthers. And I'm like, why would this book try to do that? And is it because like, sometimes I think books are trying to avoid being dated. Do you think that we're going to discover the earth is flat and then your book will seem very silly or are you like, you don't want to alienate people who hold that belief system? Right. That was a thought that I had where it's like, well, you can believe in a flat earth. Like, that's like, okay. But like, you can't really believe in one planet. And I was like, I think you're missing, like, no one who is also a flat earther is going to read this book. And also, if they did, like, you really they worried? Might. You really worried are about you- them? Yeah. For that reason, you're worried <laughs> 
And, like, I think there's something where you can be, like, there are, like, these silly, this concept of, like, silly conspiracy theories that are, like, fun to believe in. And I think sometimes people think of flat earth that way. Hollow earth. You know, these things that seem like they're divorced from humanity almost. But all of those conspiracy theories, like, are icebergs, right? And you slide down the iceberg and it inevitably leads to, I mean, like, anti-Semitism is usually the first hurdle, you know? Yeah. And then before you know it, you are an insurrectionist. A crypto-nationalist. Or just a regular nationalist. Yeah. I don't even think they're crypto anymore. (laughs) Or Christian (laughs) crypto-nationalist. Do you remember? No. No, we don't remember. We weren't alive. But when, uh, was it Noam Chomsky called William F. Buckley a crypto fascist Mm -hmm. on national television? Yep. That was a good time. And everyone was like, you can't say that. Well, it's like, I also kind of like, it's weird to live in this moment right now. And like, this is kind of off the text where like all the, all the fashions are very familiar to me, but like, at least in the nineties, Mulder and Scully were fighting white nationalist conspiracy theorists who wanted to hurt the government. And the government was doing bad things, right? Like you can't trust the government, but also these like, lone wolfers who said anti-semitic fucked up things about women were the bad guys in a lot of episodes too and i think like the 90s had a healthy understanding that homegrown terrorism was a threat and it wasn't cute at least like the media i consumed functioned that way and i think like before January 6th, we were kind of in a moment where it's like, it's fun to have a conspiracy theory. And conspiracy theories, sure. Like, for a while, I was kind of into the conspiracy theory about Avril Lavigne being, like, a body double and that, like, that per- like there were two different people at this one particular... It's, like, it's fun until it's not. And, like, this text was, like, it's fun that he stalked her and that, like, NASA didn't do anything to protect an astronaut. And it's, like, fun that John is so charming about this, like, scorpion that he can, like, lock the bad guy in his own car. And it's, like, they've... These are not fun people, and their beliefs don't make them fun. Maybe maybe that was it. Because, like, the... They needed, like, a villain. Mm -hmm. And so they were, like, who would be a villain to an astronaut? We can't do do alien. That's too wild. Or is it anymore? That's the other thing about conspiracies is that, like, we do know that, like, the United States was intentionally keeping people sick, black men sick, in order to study their reactions, right? Like, that that was real. And And they hid it from us intentionally. And people were saying, this is happening to me. And we were like, conspiracy theory. Right? Like, we've had, we have all had the experience of having a conspiracy theory verified for us. I'm not saying that the government is blameless. That's not, that's not the argument No, 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 no. Of course not. Of course not. I just wanted to acknowledge that. That's, but that's also part of the thing, something that makes a conspiracy theory so dangerous. Yes. And it also means that, like, or so volatile, I should say. But I also want to say, like, is this book trying to use this made-up conspiracy theory because it thinks that flat Earth is too fraught for certain readers? If so, that also seems like a really big shortcoming because it is clearly flat Earth. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It is 
crypto flat earthers, mm-hmm. I guess you would say. Like, it, it's obviously that. It obviously, like, the things that happen cause anxiety. We see, like, the same bent to it. So it, like, like what's the point? What is the point of obfuscating that fact? Yeah, it's... Why can't? Why are you saying cola when we all know that you mean Coke? Like, yeah, like, yeah. This dark yeah. cola. And I'm like, ah, yes. Give me some of that dark cola. Crisp, refreshing, Doctor Peepers. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what the fuck? But it's not even that whimsical. It's very scary and bad, and it's very scary and bad on the page. You know, I was definitely really. It wrapped up so quickly that I was like, oh. My terror is too real. And, like, I think that says a lot about me as a reader, like, in this post-January 6th moment. And, like, I just, like, none of that stuff is fun to me. And so, like, you know, like, re- like reckoning with myself, this is a rom-com. The stakes were never going to be that high. But, like, he fucking brought a gun to the Ahab. Like, I don't know. And you do, like, you, Isabeau, you hold, like, your current events feelings at the front. I do. At all times. I really do. And it's never, and lots of people are like that. And there's no like conscious effort to divorce when you're going in and reading a romance novel. Especially one this current that I knew had come out after that moment. So I thought like. I tend to not carry like, make, like find those things as easily. And I still was like, what? Why is this happening? <laughs> This makes me feel really uncomfortable and weird. Like, the reasons I can conceive of for why you would do it, none of them feel worthwhile and, in fact, seem kind of, like, problematic. Yeah, like, wasn't (laughs) the escape from her shitty parents at Christmas enough? And then, like, they had this amazing, very weird thing at the airport where she'd, like, set up a booty call with, like, a former lover. And he's like, that was so good. And, like, it was so awkward, and it was perfectly awkward in the way that made me just uncomfortable enough to, like, want to get on the plane with them. I'm like, we didn't need a fucking flat-earth conspiracy theorist with a gun. Like, there's enough emotional landmines in this text to navigate that, like, we didn't actually need a bad guy. She's a bad enough person to be her own bad guy. Well, and, but but even her, like, stakes for not getting in a relationship, like, she wants to go to the moon within a year. What is she going to do? Like, be in a long-term, long-distance relationship with someone when she has this huge, important, soul-sized career goal, right? Like, that's huge. Like, of course, a relationship's going to be an issue for her in this situation. And she's actually quite noble for not wanting to get someone else mixed up in it. And likewise, him, you know, like he can't leave Los Angeles. Uh, he also wants to achieve things for himself and gain some credibility and kind of compensate for his undiagnosed ADHD, right? And then once he diagnoses it, he feels a lot more comfortable in who he is and is able to like move on from wanting to do this Oscar movie. Also, like the ending of like why he doesn't have to make this terrible movie is also hilarious and great that this director, James Cameron-esque, <laughs> wanted to go head to head with his ex-wife. Get back to Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> yeah. Wanted to go head to head with his wife at the Academy Awards. And she was making a bottom of the ocean documentary. So he was going to make a space movie. And, like, then they end up eloping again and reconnecting. And that's why the movie doesn't... That's brilliant. 
like the thing is is like all of these other pieces land so well and work so well she could have had a PR disaster with just like a regular reporter like it would make sense for me if this character had just mouthed off to a well-meaning National Geographic reporter and it could have been something as simple as like you don't fund us, which is why we don't go to the moon, right? And that would have got, like, you know, Congress all up in arms. And then NASA's like, well, you, like, fucked up Congress. And now, like, we got to backbench you because you can't be too obvious. Because then, like, the Congress people are going to be, like, you know, whatever. Like, causing that kind of trouble. Like, that, I think, would have been funny and in keeping with the tone overall. Rather than, like, shoehorning in these, like, insurrectionist conspiracy theorists who like track them to the desert and if you're going to do that which you still could i just think you should be more upfront about it be like these are flat earthers you've got to be more specific about their ideology and you've got to have like a couple of like i mean there are some great slapstick moments in the thing but it just i think it would have been better for me if it would have just said it called it what it was you know, I don't understand why it was obfuscated. That makes me feel suspicious. And I'm already feeling nervous, politically nervous. Because, like, what if this book you were really, really enjoying is suddenly like, and guess what? It was true. There is a flat earth. And the whole point of this romance novel, I've heard Haunting Adeline is actually an, a QAnon fanfic. Great. That's neat. Love that. <laughs> cool <laughs> yeah i i think that was really frustrating i agree that was a weird part what's your weirdest part there is this thing that happens and i've only seen it in contemporary romance and i think maybe it's because i wear the clothing that people are taking off in these books mm-hmm. but we've talked about it in the pants in the pants in the past but two things about conspiracy of conspiracy contemporary romance and clothing first of all Men are, the men are constantly wearing jeans. They are always in jeans. Men don't have other clothes in contemporary romance. It's jeans or, they, they don't even wear slacks. They don't even wear like a light cotton gym short. <laughs> That's so true. Why aren't they wearing fucking gym shorts? He's working out all the time. Yeah. She talks about seeing his beefy thighs through his tight jeans. And it's like, I feel like there has been a real like appreciation of men with beefy thighs in like the last five years. They're all wearing shorter shorts. They're all wearing those five inch inseams to show them off. Then you get these. <laughs> I remember it when we read the like the book about the woman who ran the dating app and the football player. Yeah. The right swipe or something. There was there was a sex scene in the backseat of a car, and we were like, how? Yeah, absolutely. How are you getting those skinny jeans that are painted onto your body? Okay, listen to this. Air whooshed out of her lungs, and he shifted her higher against him. The buttons on his fly, scraping against her stomach, dragging the hem of her sweatshirt up. If, he, if his button fly is dragging her sweatshirt up, I would imagine that she is sliding down his body. Good point. That's how gravity works and the friction of that moment. Then his hands were lower, roughly cupping her ass, and she instinctively locked her legs around him. And finally, finally, they were eye level. So what I'm picturing is she's wrapped her legs around the back of his knee. <laughs> now he's like leaning over her the buttons on his fly scraping against her stomach 
is a wonderful detail, very tingly. Could have happened at a different point. I also thought, you know, just like as a point, there was way too much gunmetal gray. Her eyes are gunmetal gray. Her mom's eyes are gunmetal gray. A lot of stuff in the Ahab are gunmetal gray. And then there's an actual gun that is gunmetal gray. There's also, he talks about his man bun, which is like, was dated in 2022. Also, she says she's goth, but like all of her actual interests are meant to be in opposition to her goth identity. But we never get any interests that are goth. Just eyeliner, honestly, because, like, you know, I guess the walls of her childhood bedroom are very dark. But they're, like, painted with stars because she's an astronaut. It feels like someone heard the detail that people think goth girls are hot now and, like, ran with it. Yeah. It's kind of a sheltered perspective, which is also a problem of contemporary romance, I think. There's all these, like, little winks that don't go anywhere and I mm. think are just supposed to make you go, like, oh, but I know what that leads, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's right. But aren't actually meaningful to character development in any way. And having, being goth would be very meaningful to your character development. You would for sure have a complex if you were thirty-five, a 35-year-old goth in 2022. right. Because that said something specific then about her professionalism. That says something really specific about how she chooses to characterize herself and make yeah. herself a character. And I will say there was this one line uh, where, like, he falls into the pool and, like, all her makeup washes off and she has to go home and redo it. Um, and she says this – it's a throwaway line, but it was so good, which is why I remember it, where it's like – and she puts on the makeup the way that she puts it on to cover her acne scars – And that she, like, wants to put on a full face when she's around him because he's too beautiful and she doesn't want people to see her acne scars. And I was like, here's a great detail for why someone would wear full face goth makeup at 35 at NASA. Why aren't we doing more with, like, this insecurity or where this is coming from or, like, what her shitty mother would have said about it. like I I was left to envision all of that from that throwaway line but like there I felt like there could have been more development there and it was quite good right like I think you I mean you said it perfectly when you're like there are a lot of winks at things that don't go anywhere yeah and are actually very rich yep and if you would have just done like a little bit more pushing like dropped a specific band reference that would have been great Mm-hmm. Like, it talks about how she likes Bon Jovi, but that's in spite of what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that she wears eyeliner. <laughs> right? It's like, Bon Jovi wears eyeliner. <laughs> yeah. That's not, those things aren't in opposition to one another. What was your sexiest part? Uh, that masturbation scene where he's forced to share her little cubby because the, like, air purifier in his cubby isn't working and he's so hot for her that he just they have a little like paper hospital curtain betwixt them they're both very horny right and he waits until her breathing evens out and then we know because we head hop in this text very successfully that she is indeed awake furtively listening to the sounds of him taking out his penis and thinking about her. And so she's envisioning his thoughts while he's fantasizing about her in this deeply enclosed claustrophobic space where he doesn't want to make too much noise because he doesn't want to wake her, but she's already awake. It's just, and it's so hot. She's, she's 
like so into it that she like even her thighs pushing together is like almost too much friction and she like almost makes herself orgasm that way and she knows that it's going to be a loud cum and so she like (laughs) (laughs) gross don't phrase it like that that sounds like oop that sounds a loud cum it's gonna be a loud cum gross that's how the text phrases it no it doesn't let me find it it's it's uh page 185 in my book panic clawed at her she had to stop this he'd heard her come she wouldn't be able to hold back wouldn't be able to steer it into something tame and discreet her back would bow up off the bed every muscle in her body convulsing her breath exploding through her gritted teeth with her last shred of willpower she twisted and rolled out of the bed so she doesn't say she's going to do a loud cum. <laughs> she panics because she knows it's going to be loud. My problem is with the phrasing you provided of doing a loud cum. I said she knows it's going to be a loud cum. That's still bad. According to you. It's a loud cum because it makes a cum, like, not a verb, but a noun, like, fart. No, thank you. This is going to be a poll on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) See? See? See what you're evoking when you say it like that? Gross. I don't know who I'm evoking for you. Not who. What? And it's a plop. It's a plop. I mean, that's, that's a you thing, bud. I don't think it is. I think anyone who heard that turn of phrase would say, don't say that ever again. It's going to be a loud cum. Yes. Uh-oh, here comes a loud cum. <laughs> don't hold in your cum like that. It'll destroy your brain cells. It will literally burst her ribcage, as she says in this text. You just make shit up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I inferred from the text that it was going you to be a lie. What would ever say that? Don't you bring Jim Comfort into this and suggest that she would write the phrase, she doesn't want to do a, a loud orgasm like she doesn't want to have a loud orgasm mm-hmm. like come something about like i don't know i don't like it i don't like it listen don't you don't like have to it. it's a free country and i'm allowed to <laughs> give you negative feedback which i can or cannot accept at my own free welcome will. to the welcome to the free market idea of ideas courtesy of woman <sighs> <sighs> Anyways, I don't know if I'll ever find anything sexy ever again after that, but I'll try and remember my sexiest part. (laughs) Well, there were only one and a half sex scenes. (laughs) That's true. There were only one and a half sex scenes. One scene that I remember being like, oh my, is the first kind of encounter they have. So they have to go out to dinner together. She's just saved him from the pool um, he's felt her full, rich bosom up against his back and gotten turned on. We also found out that 
He had previously watched her video where she punches the guy and jerked off to it. This book talks about masturbation a lot. And it also kind of, like, thinks, does think about, like, effectively reference the amount of, like, imagery we have available of one another Mm -hmm. in this day and age. (laughs) I found my place because I highlighted the phrase, wear my purple jumpsuit, and just wrote, no. (laughs) There's something, I love jumpsuits, but the idea of a purple jumpsuit just really upset me. She, he has to leave the restaurant because the director is making fun of him for being uh, not smart or something. And he's very charming and winsome, and so he's non-confrontational. So he departs the restaurant just as Reggie is arriving, and they have a moment together in, under an awning before going into the restaurant. And he thinks about how pretty she is. She crossed her arms, which had the unfortunate side effect of boosting her killer breast. I'll allow it in hindsight because it's very true to the character who's narrating this. True. So supremely unfortunate. He tried to look away. He really, really tried so much so that he barely heard her continue. I don't, and she says, if you aren't up to this, say so now. I'd rather not waste a month fucking around when the mission I want is on the line. I'll let my colleague Wes take over because I'm sure he'd love this bullshit. You two can stage a whole damn talent show. I don't want Wes, though. I want you. As soon as the words were out, he realized how they sounded. It was just like a really pivotal moment for me where I was like, oh, I think this book, it actually like has good comedic timing. And in spite of the fact that she's wearing a purple jumpsuit and he has a man bun, like, I feel like I can get behind these people. And, like, that this has, like, against my will built sexual tension that I wasn't expecting. And I appreciate the overarching, like, of course, longing, but, like, highly specific longing. Talking about erections and (laughs) yeah this is a highly specific text of longing and it takes forever like the fact that I was like this is very steamy and you're like well they're only 1.5 sex scenes and I was like they talk about like how much they want to do each other all the time all the time yeah so like what was the hubbub around this on twitter oh it's just that like people were talking about it positively in a like 3.5 to 4 star way but it never caught in the same way that Dead Romantics or the Allie Hazelwood book did. And it came out around the same space, like in the same six months. And I think like maybe to its own detriment, like maybe it would have gotten more because it was always mentioned in the same breath or like not the same breath, but like. It, it certainly lives under the same roof. Right. It, it was like it was caught in those same umbrellas, but it was like. For if it was like, if you loved this, you'll probably like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It was a if it was the then of the if thens. Devastating. Right. Oh, well, it's devastating for me. I'm gonna call it a woe. I'm gonna call it a woe. I had really? fun. Yeah. Like I had some serious problems with the ending. Like it didn't stick the landing as hard as I wished it to. But I would recommend this to people. I think it's well written. I think in all of the ways that you think it's successful, I mostly agree with. And one of the things mm. that we didn't even <laughs> talk about that I that you and I really do enjoy that we don't see as much in contemporary rom-coms is, like, good head-hopping. 
I feel like we get a lot of like willy nilly head hopping that isn't as quite successful as I wish it would be. But I felt like every head hop here was really earned and gave me a different view. Like I loved knowing that he knew that she'd fix the air purifier, but hadn't told him. And he just like let her not tell him. And we get like totally different vocabularies between the two characters, um, different tenors, I guess I would say different pacing from both characters. It is really well done. I mean, like, I'm talking about, like, the typical romance, like, back and forth, cuddly third. But it is very good at uh, creating two holistic characters. And it gets away with, like, way less exposition because of that, I think. I think that's actually super true. Good point. (laughs) All right, so two woes. Any other thoughts about this book? I think, I mean, like, I hate to if-then it. But, like, I would say if you enjoy contemporary rom-coms, you need this. Honestly, I think with a new cover, this this book would have bigger, bigger stretch. We're all human beings consuming with more than one sense. You know what I mean? You saw this cover and didn't read the back of the book, and you're like, a sentient star mass has fallen <laughs> in love with an astronaut. <laughs> and I was like, I'd read that book. <laughs> yeah, also someone write that book. Absolutely. Please do. With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at woemans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>